You're listening to Agile Next, the next generation Agile talk show. I'm Daniel Gulo. And I'm Stephen Forte. Each week, we ask industry leaders to share their past experiences with Agile practices and to provide their insights into where Agile is heading to next. The show is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and by visiting our website at www.agilenext.tv. This episode is brought to you by Applebrook Consulting and Fresco Capital. Whatever your Agile needs, Applebrook Consulting can help with training and coaching. Visit our website at www.apple-brook.com. Fresco Capital is a global venture capital firm focusing on entrepreneurs building global businesses. Visit our website at fresco.vc. Episode 28, December 22nd, 2016. Today, we have Rob Ridgman on our show. Uh, Rob is the author of The Culture Blueprint, A Systematic Guide to Building the High-Performance Workplace. He was also the manager and cultural strategist for Zappos, and he co-founded Zappos Insights, which is an innovative program focused on educating companies on the secrets behind game-changing employee culture. So, Rob, talk to us about your time at Zappos. Yeah, um, it's like being at camp every day, pretty much. Um, it's uh, it was a really, really incredible experience to be part of and take um, what was and and is a, a world class culture. And my role was to um, to share it with every company that wanted to learn how to create a world class culture and world class customer service. Robert, when did you first hear about holacracy, and what are your thoughts on implementing it? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I I knew when Zappos was doing it far before when the media did, and I didn't see it as a big deal. Um, what really made it a big deal was actually a misnomer of a headline. It was when a journalist said Zappos gets rid of all managers, and that basically sensationalized it. I didn't even think it was a news story before that because. Um, it, it's really not getting rid of managers, as Zappos is, is, says themselves. Um, it's a whole different system of operating, and it's very experimental. And um, so I didn't even see it as a story at the time when I heard about it. But then I was talking to one of my colleagues and mentors about it, Dan Mezik, who was saying that it took a lot from sociocracy. And it's funny because Dan was always trying to get me to read sociocracy. And I said, no, this is too big and bloated and confusing. And um, somehow it seemed that, that holacracy made it very palatable to organizations. And um, it's, it's based on a lot of really good things of, um, of agility around um, using circle-based governance. A lot of concepts in there. Whenever I've tried to explain people's head spin – and that's my biggest problem with it is that it's very, very, very complex. You know, the Wall Street Journal had an article saying that the U.S. Constitution is 5,000 words. The Holacracy Constitution is 15,000 words. And um, I, I think it's just a very, very bloated system that tries to get the human element out of business in a lot of ways. And I don't think that that's ultimately right for companies. And I think that... The biggest thing about it is, A, it's only been done really well with companies that are a few hundred people. When it scales larger than that, there isn't like a test case that says this scales and it works. Um, but also, I think the biggest factor in any new system for a culture, which is a living, breathing organism, is to make sure that it's opt-in, that people really have a chance to um, 
to choose to be a part of it at first as opposed to having it forced on them. I think that, that that's where culture really goes sideways. And you mentioned that trying to one of the things you're doing, one of the things it's doing is trying to remove the human element out of the equation in business. And ultimately, you take like some of the largest mergers of all time or some of the largest business deals of all time, big, big entity one and big, big entity two, like Continental buying United. At the end of the day, on both sides of the table are people. So is it even possible to take the human element out of business? I don't I really don't think it is. I, I think that that's that's the whole big thing about culture is that, um, you know, it comes I, I feel culture work is like the health food of business. It's nobody really wants to do it so much. The people who do seem kind of crazy and out there. Um, and it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of time. And it's something that you can easily ruin very quickly. Um, so this kind of work around culture, it, it's people want to create an app for it. People want to create a system. People want to create a whole process that says, oh, great. Now we finally got people running the way our apps and programs do, which is highly efficient, which is all those things. But at the end of the day, people are really emotional. And I think that the biggest factor that I see is that systems, even systems of change, rarely take into consideration human emotion and how we're going to work that into the system and actually value it than instead of trying to say, hey, that's not, that's not appropriate for business. You've also worked with Google and Toyota and some other um, organizations out there. Can you share with us some of the highlights of, of your uh, experience with consulting in those organizations? Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun to bring this kind of thinking in there. I was at Toyota's uh, U.S. headquarters, and I um, I said to them the the idea of the optional meeting and what that would would uh, would look like. And I said, you know, what if you didn't have to go to meetings? Well, and and half the group was erupting in applause, saying, "Oh my God, this was amazing!" And the other group was saying. Um, no, this is terrible. This is absolutely awful. Nobody will show up at our meetings. And I just thought that was so funny because then, then the other group started to talk to them and said, yeah, that's the point. You know, if the meeting isn't highly relevant to my job or it's just really entertaining and interesting, why should I show up? And it, it like I could see them process in real time this idea of that, that, that that's almost like sacrilege, the idea that that we can't simply throw somebody into the required field of outlook and suddenly we've met, we've owned their schedule and they have to be somewhere at a certain time. And, um, so introducing these kind of ideas and seeing what I think is ideal, which is this attention. Um, usually if there's not attention, they don't even need me or they don't really care. But when there is attention, that's when you've discovered gold. That's when you've discovered, oh, there's something really juicy here to play with and experiment because that's how it happens is they don't just suddenly adopt and change. It's some people lead the charge and, and experiment and play and others notice when it's successful and notice them getting better results and are happier. Have you have a lot of resistance with the meetings? You talked about half the people said yes, half the people said no. What was the ultimate outcome of some of those examples? It's a good question. I leave it to them to play with them, um, for them to experiment with it. When I, I these these this idea of meetings is really interesting because it's a microcosm of culture, and part of my way that I go into this is I am unattached. 
because I don't, um, I, I don't believe in force and culture. I believe if something is valuable and self-evident, they're going to have it. And I went into this biotech firm, a very famous one, and um, and they were talking. They said, "Oh, we know culture. We know our values. We know um, all these things." And but they weren't living it. And it was clear that there's a shadow set of values. You know, the shadow set of values is the ones that they don't really talk about, but they um, they're following anyway. And so it's those kind of things about um, that that people were really valuing just getting work done, no matter what the cost. And they were valuing about that above the actual values they articulated. And so after three hours of this, I started to see we we can't even approach the whole culture. We need to start really small with meetings. And I said, how often are people on time for meetings? Rarely. How often do meetings go over? Often. And I said, you know what? We can't do culture work until you fix your meetings. Because if you are showing up late to a meeting, then then you're not respecting the person throwing the meeting or respecting your own time even if you're agreeing to something that you can't show up to on time. And I said, if you're running a meeting late, if you're running past your allotted time, that means you don't care about that person's next meeting. So that means your individual goals and responsibilities trump that of the culture. And I said, until you can be on time with meetings and end meetings on time, there is not enough respect for each person in the organization for us to begin to work on the values. And they just stood there kind of cold stone faced realizing, whoa, we really like they got it after three hours. They got it. And I said, look, here's here's what I propose you do, because any big change is something that scares people. Because when there's a big change, we feel like it's going to be permanent. Like let's say you love coffee and I say, okay, let's, let, like, let's take out your coffee, right? <laughs> Daniel, your bulletproof coffee. Like you, you, you'd, you'd freak out there, right? You'd be like, I can't imagine a world without that. But if I say to you, you know, what if we ran an experiment? What if for a week you didn't have it or two weeks or whatever that is and see if these, the, this other thing gets better? And you can say to yourself, oh, you know what? And, and, and I, it probably wouldn't be bulletproof coffee. It would be something that you, like these people, agreed that it would be good time, good to end meetings on time, but they're just too scared to commit to it forever because of all the things that could be ramifications. And I said, what if you commit to two weeks? Only two weeks. You will be on time and end every meeting on time, and nobody's going to die. <laughs> Nothing's going to really go off the rails. And in, after those two weeks, you can do whatever you want. And they said that they uh, that, that they would do that, and um, and that that's that's what I like to to go into cultures with is to you know they call me in for the bigger work that I think everybody wants to do. We want to achieve our goals and revenue and do huge innovations, and I get that. But it's like if we don't know how to walk, we won't know how to run. And in fact, the analogy keeps going because if you run without really knowing how to stretch, how to warm up, how to train and you just sprint, you can really injure yourself. And that's what I see companies doing is they, they, um, they're injuring the culture with these little things that they think are little, like ending a meeting that's not on time actually hurts people and does build up over time and build up a ton of resistance resentments. So, you know, people are obsessed with those bigger things, but I think the real leverage is in these smaller changes.
it's um, refreshing to hear you talk about meetings. I've been on a crusade for almost 20 years to get rid of meetings. I friends with a lot of developers and the joke goes, oh, you're a programmer. What do you do? And then they say, what is your job? I'm a programmer, but what do you do? I delete email and go to meetings. And um, I think we all know that <laughs> meetings are broken. And um, I once tried to save my team. I was CTO of a dot com like 20 years ago or 17 years ago. And I would just use Outlook to block off a whole day. So it looked like I was in an all day meeting and I, and the meeting was called meeting free Friday. So I could actually get real work done one day a week. And I understand how, yeah, it worked. It was pretty effective actually. And what I, what I understand is we saw the meetings at our company change when we were a smaller company and then we hired some, some people from larger companies that brought that meeting culture with them. And then the entire organization's culture changed with it. Email changed. I mean, everything changed. So I like how you start with the meeting and then bubble your way up. What would be an example, though, is after that two-week experiment with meetings, what is the next cultural thing you start to attack? Yeah, I, I start to get them into this, this mindset around sprinting. Um, you know, I think there's a lot that comes with agility and scrum and all those things. But it's, it's a pretty simple concept to say, okay, rather than just – running a marathon constantly where we're just constantly working and working and working and working. What if we really divided it up? What if we came together as a team, said this is what we're going to accomplish for two weeks, did it, you know, at the end of two weeks, say what did we learn? Did we did we find um, that we could do more, that we could do less? And uh, and and getting them to to experiment with with that concept. I find that even that can be really challenging. So I, I, what I, what I'm finding is the, the way to get them into these kind of things is what I call the culture hacks, which are ways to, um, to like the hack of just starting and ending a meeting on time. Or Dan Mezik says, start a meeting 10 minutes late just so that everybody can roll in, get accustomed and then start it right then. And because hacks are things that you can experiment that are very, very low level investment, but high output. So for example, I, uh, w one of the other things I'll start them with is I'll say to a leader, like I'll say, look, you actually don't know what you don't know. And nobody can argue with that statement, right? You can't argue that, <laughs> that you know what you don't know. So I say, look, the, the, your, your, your survey monkeys aren't getting the data. Your one-on-one -on -one conversations aren't getting the data because nobody wants to disappoint you one-on-one. -on -one. And your survey monkey stuff, I'm, I just seen it. it, just goes in a drawer. You need to get the real, true, honest feedback to know where you are and know what you don't know. And I say the culture hack for that is I say, um, sit down one-on-one -on -one with people and ask them, please tell me the thing that you think I don't want to hear. And that's a language hack because it tells people you need to go there. You need to say that thing you don't want to say because that's the question. I'm not asking you for feedback. If I'm asking you for feedback, there's almost an implied desire for a compliment. But if I ask you, please tell me the thing you think I don't want to hear, I'm saying you have permission to tell me the thing you think would make me mad because that's what I need to know. And that's where I had once a, a COO, like he at the end of the speech, he just took his team into a room. I didn't even get to talk to them. He just dragged his whole team into a room and said, I need to know that. I need to know that now um, because it's such a fast way to create change. Um, so these, I tend to talk more about these, these hacks because people want change. They want it fast. They want it now. It's a very now driven culture. And if that, if you, if you create change through these hacks, it frees up energy 
that allows you to then spend that energy on the bigger initiatives. And it seems like those hacks are give you small little wins that you can build on. Is that is that the case? Exactly. Exactly. All in the spirit of experimentation. Totally. What kind of challenges do you see or what is the correlation between hacking culture within IT and perhaps outside of IT? Well, I think IT has the opportunity to be on the forefront of everything. You know, only now, I think, is sprinting and scrum and these types of agile methodologies really starting to trickle into a non-IT environment. And I, I feel that technology is driving culture in a lot of ways. Um, the old management models for the industrial age were, um, were military-based. And then as we moved into a service economy, they've become very team-based, a lot of team analogies. So we've gone to words like coach and, uh, and innovation and play and intuition and these kind of things that you'd see on a sports team. But I think the next phase of it is as everything especially becomes more and more virtual, everything's going to be a lot more like a network. And when it's like a network, um, the people who understand networks are going to be understanding people in a lot of ways. Uh, that So I think that IT has the opportunity right now to be on the forefront. And you see companies playing with this, companies like Spotify who are playing with the guild concept of this cross-lateral matrix-like um, uh, management structure. And you see companies like WordPress who are completely uh, without an office. And they do interesting things like they'll come together for a few weeks um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a nice destination in the world and then they'll disperse and they come together on a per project basis. And um, oddly enough, I see it kind of combining models with the film industry, the way the film industry can intensely focus on a project and then be, be done with it. And I think that there's a lot of fulfillment in that. So I personally don't have enough experience with the IT world to say what those all those are, connections are, but I really feel like a, IT is on the forefront of what's going to happen next. And I, I just was thinking when you were saying that, as like, you know, WordPress and Spotify are tech companies. And I spent a short, but very early in my career time at um, on Wall Street with the alpha male, you know, traders on the desk screaming and yelling. Do you think environments that are non-tech companies like a financial institution or an insurance company or, you know, some non-tech companies would accept that the culture comes out of IT, that IT is kind of pushing that culture out. Do you think there are hurdles and challenges that they'll face or do you think it would be relatively accepted? I think they won't accept it because IT can be so cocky about it, even if they're right. Even in a trading desk though, it was like the trading desk guys are way more cocky than the IT guys, even if the IT guys are, you know, the, the best of them. <laughs> Oh, I'm not saying anybody would listen to the trading guys either. Um, but I think with the trading guys, they, they'd be more like, you know, I work with those kind of teams sometimes and they, they want the cutting edge and they're willing to experiment with the cutting edge, um, what, whatever that, that may be, if they believe that it's that. Um, so I think that um, I, I, I guess I, I rarely hear it from um, you know people like Dan Mezek, people like you, Daniel, who who can kind of get both worlds, and I think that it takes that certain trickster level um, dancing between those two worlds to to be able to do it. Because I mean, even you know, right now, if you just if if you if you go to the Scrum training and and see all the 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 things like user stories and 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 all how much it's heavily steeped in, in tech. It's hard to see 
how it all applies beyond tech. So I think the language is very technically based, and if it's if it's language, I mean that's literally speaking a foreign language. So um, un until the the it goes, I, I actually see it going opposite of tech in the sense that I've been talking to to Dan Mezik about creating a literal physical board game out of his open agility process of making it that tangible that it's like a game where we're moving cards around about what's happening. That's what I think the brilliance of Kanban is, especially when it's not done online, is, is that the more tangible, this is a quote from, oh, Tom Peters, yeah, Tom Peters. He said, the more intangible the thing is, the more you can make it tangible, the more chance it has for being adopted. And I think that as the, the tech world is so intangible with code, people don't get it. Like you just, unless you're in code, I remember I took two days of a programming class and I was out of there in college because I just couldn't wrap my mind around how code works. And um, I think that's, that's going to be some sort of bridge. The people who can create not just the word and methodology, but actual interfaces. Because a board game is an interface and an iPhone app is an interface. I think the reason why the iPhone did so well is they created an interface based on a lot of metaphors that that so much doesn't need an instruction manual that you watch babies playing with it. And I think that's where you've known you hit gold, when you don't even need a manual. And that's where I see all this going. And those interfaces lead to deeper engagement. Totally. These are some really great points. And you, you touch on many of them in your book that came out last year, The Culture Blueprint. What is one key point that you think makes it a must read for folks that are seeking to improve their organizations? I'd say the the... What makes it a must-read, because there's a lot on there on recruiting, on training, on customer service, on innovation, on how to solve conflicts. Um, I really wrote it. What, what surprises me is that I wrote it as, as an instruction manual. I, I wrote it thinking it's inherently boring because I wanted people to just say, oh, shoot, I got a recruiting problem, and then for them to open the chapter on recruiting and find it, or, oh, I don't know what to do about this, and, and that there's chapters on all those things. So the thing is I wrote it expecting for people not even to really read it, but what's been really surprising for me is um, how many people, including um, a 16-year-old even said it. He said, like, it is really, really an enjoyable fun read that um, that makes a lot of sense that I can put into action immediately. And so I, I, I think the biggest reason to read a book is actually like that it's an enjoyable experience because otherwise to me it's just a manual. So it surprised me that how many people have said they've enjoyed it, both the audio book and, 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 and the regular book, and that if, 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 you, if you're not a big fan of it, you can just turn the, the like, I mean, not a big fan really of, of reading a whole thing through, you can just turn to the table of contents, notice where you're feeling some friction in your culture, go to that chapter, and I'm pretty sure there's going to be a solution in there for you. And, and I have an interesting question about your book is more about the feedback or people who've contacted you about your book or your speaking or your writing. What has been the most unlikely organization to adopt some of your methods and have success with it that if you if someone would have told you a year ago, oh, this group over here, you know, maybe it was like the Vatican or maybe it was the military or something, something really strange, right, that you wouldn't think would adopt these principles, but they, they contacted you or you found out that they did. Uh, what would be an example of one of those? Oh, man, I'd have to look back at my emails. But I got to say that the, the most surprising experience I've had with the culture work um, was at Zappos when I um, the the soup kitchen that I used to work in 
they sent four people to the training and it's five grand a person. And I'm like, what? They, sh they showed up there. I've been working there for years in the past. And I said, you're a soup kitchen and you're spending five grand per person for five people on culture training? Like it blew my mind. And they said, yeah, we got a grant that we couldn't spend on food. The grant said you must, you know, you must have it. Um, it must be an excellence in operationalizing. And they said they wanted to, to, to study culture and come to Zappos Insights. And it kind of it blew my mind that that even a soup kitchen, which I didn't think would 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 even really resonate with this, said culture is the number one priority. Um, if we do that, it's going to have this huge ripple effect, not only on our staff, but all the people we serve. That's amazing. I never, I never would have guessed Soup Kitchen. That's totally awesome. Rob, when folks come on our show, we like to ask them sort of a standard question. What do you think the future holds for Agile, like in say the next one, two, five years? Yeah, I, I'd say um, that the future of it is in making it accessible. Like it kind of surprises me that the safe methodology um, is that the people find that infographic really compelling. Cause to me it looks like an entire bloated system. No offense to those who created it. I think it, it probably works great. And um, there's clearly a lot of work that went into that. But to me, like I, that's not something I feel like I could take to any organization and say, Oh, see, this is how you do Agile across the organization. Um, I think there's a major opportunity for creating what people would call the iPhones of the Agile world, for the things that are that just suddenly took something that was a little more esoteric, that was a little more towards these niche groups that uh, that were that were fans of it and were able to take it mainstream. And I think that that's going to come. Um, from the world of design, it's going to come from the world of um, of making it literally tangible things that we can that we can put into our hands and for people to 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 get it. And once there's a combination of that with organizations that are using it, I, I spoke with a woman at at eighteen F. Are you guys familiar with eighteen F? No. I think you'd really really enjoy checking it out. It's the division of the government that goes into government organizations to help them become agile. And they, they're, they're, they have a really interesting card deck that they use. They, um, they're having tremendous results either teaching government organizations agility or they're actually going in there and just doing the job. Like if they need a big website rollout, they'll go in there, send programmers, um, product owners, scrum masters, and, and get it done. And... Um, and I was talking to the 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 woman who runs it, and she she had this great phrase. It's probably been used by other people in the agile world, but she said, "What we're doing is making the organization the product. So rather than a rollout of a software or or you know an app or anything like that, what if you treated the actual organization as a product that you're developing sprint after sprint? And I think the companies that start to work on that concept." are going to really um, pioneer some new pathways for Agile. Have you been able to apply that kind of mentality in, in any of your consulting engagements? Not yet. That's why I think it's still uh, leading edge kind of work. 
Um, I think it's messy work right now. I think it's really still finding its footing. But I think that any industry, like you take a look at, you know, the early phone companies. There were a lot of different phone companies. Or if you if you remember, you know, what the phone world was like before smartphones um, and iPhones. Like there was no standardization. There was like you had if you had a game developer, you had to port the game to like hundreds of different platforms and then QA all those different platforms. I mean, it was crazy back then. I think any kind of new innovation like that that's starting to gain foothold, there's a lot of different applications of it, and it looks really messy. And that's that's where I feel like the the agility within non-IT environments is right now. It's kind of all over the place, but it's going to become more standardized. Uh, so do you yourself have any experience with uh, Agile in government? I don't. What's the most non-traditional environment you've worked in in terms of agile yeah in terms of agile i mean it really depends on how much you stretch the definition of agile i mean i i worked with uh, alive on stage a um a head of a government agency and and coached him through my culture hacking process and um just showed him how much his 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 basis of thinking was that he knows better than everybody else and that he wasn't actually giving credence to to the people and what they wanted, and um, so I think that there is there's an opportunity for a new way of thinking and for hacking our cultures and hacking our brains and and hacking these systems at at, at any level. Um, it's just if if people feel you know, I have to always <laughs> often credit Dan Mezik, who who really blew my mind when he came into to Zappos Insights. And he um, he diagnosed very quickly that my team didn't feel safe, and I was really surprised by that. And he said, "Yeah, you know, none of this stuff works if people are are safe because we were having trouble adapting to to agile with with our team." And I was surprised at Zappos, a company that I feel has strong culture, and my team that's strong culture. There is still more. Bring it back to this human emotion side for us to explore about how do we really make people feel safe. And, um, and I think that that's no matter how great a culture or how messed up a culture that there's, there's work to do there. And I've, I've found that across industries. You've mentioned already a little bit about open technology. Um, I know that you've met Harrison Owen in the past. Can you t talk to me about that experience of meeting Harrison? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm really in awe of him and what he discovered and how much he, um, how humble he is that he he gives so much credence to the people and the process and really directs a lot of attention away from himself, even though he's had so much experience. What's what's amazing about meeting um, Harrison Owen is that he he really believes that everything is open space, that that it's just always going on. And once we start to acknowledge it and see it and work with it that's when we can understand it. So I love that he's, in a lot of ways, he's not proselytizing and trying to get open space technology out into the world like it's something to adopt. He sees the world as it's all open space all the time. And, and these tools that he's developed are a way to harness it and use it consciously rather than unconsciously. So lastly, Rob, would love to ask you, what are you working on that's really cool and exciting over the next six months or so or the, the second half of 2016? Any cool books or keynotes you're delivering or any new themes you're sensing in the marketplace that you can uh, share with us? Mm. Yeah, um, there's. I'm, I'm speaking at Awesomeness Fest, which is a big thing in Greece. 
um, in, in May. It's, it's a really cool, it's almost like Burning Man meets Ted talks, um, that I'm, yeah, that I'm, I'm really, really excited about. And, um, the, I'm, I'm working on something that's, that's very out there right now. Um, that's about, uh, working with the unconscious mind. Because what I'm finding is that there's only so much that we can do with uh, consciously. You know, like even if you take culture, like culture, our, our, our results are based on our actions. Our actions are based on our habits. You know, our habits are based on our values. Our values get shaped by our experiences. And, and so much of that is just like happening without us even being conscious of it, that all those things are being shaped without our conscious mind on it. And what I've found more and more is that there's, that there's things going on um, that are beyond the conscious mind. And what I'm developing now is a, essentially a technology that allows us to work directly with the unconscious mind because oftentimes we associate it like we're learning from it as opposed to working with it and um, developing an experimental, playful relationship with the unconscious mind. That's something that deeply resonates with me as well. Uh, Rob, thank you very much for being on our show. Your insights have been very useful. We really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Great to talk to you. Next week on Adel Next, we have Dave Pryor. Big Agile Next thank you to our sponsors, Fresco Capital and Applebrook Consulting. Visit Fresco Capital at frescocapital.com and Applebrook Consulting at apple-brook.com. We hope to see you next week on Agile Next. In the meantime, check out our website at agilenext.tv. 